The thrill and excitement of March Mania is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is giving new customers a shot to turn 5 bucks into $150 instantly in bonus bets with any college basketball bet. You can find all the lines and available odds, of course, at the DraftKings Sportsbook app. North Carolina listeners, don't forget, DraftKings Sportsbook is now live in your state. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SBNFL. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SBNFL. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Start! You can call me Bruce. Nolan is standing by. Hey, wacky Bruce! Coming to you from an undisclosed location, this is the Bruce Exclusive. And here's your host, Bruce Nolan. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome. To another edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. Well, that wasn't quite as much fun as I thought it was going to be. The Buffalo Bills lost to the Pittsburgh Steelers this past Sunday, and it kind of got the year off to a little bit of a dud. After all the hype, After all the expectations, the first play of the game is a kickoff return that is long by Isaiah McKenzie, 75 yards, and that place was rocking. I wouldn't know precisely because I wasn't there, but it sounded like it was rocking on the television set. For those of you who are new to the Bruce Exclusive this year, What we are going to talk about is the narratives that have come out of that game. And we have a lot to get into. And I do want to try to get to some listener emails as well. So because of it, we're going to dive right into it. So expectations minus reality equal disappointment. One of the reasons why there was such a visceral reaction to the game on Sunday is because the expectations were so high. The expectations coming in were unbelievably high this Super Bowl year there were people picking the Buffalo Bills to go 15 and 2 16 and 1 17 and 0 they thought this was an unbelievable team we just came off a draft season where there were proponents of drafting a running back in the first round specifically because they thought this team is so stacked that they can afford to get away with a luxury pick times change don't they Times changed fast. One game in, it's already, oh my gosh, is this team as good as we thought they were? So we're going to dive into some of those things. But before we do, let's go back. Expectations 
minus reality equal disappointment, which is fine. Feeling disappointed this week, I think is a completely reasonable emotional response. You're disappointed that your team didn't perform as well as you were hoping they would perform against a team that you believe your team is better than. The way you keep disappointment from bleeding into more extreme negative emotions that may be close to it on the wheel is you take the things point by point and you go through them that you were disappointed in to attempt to give them proper context. And with proper context, you can keep that level of disappointment as just that, disappointment. And it doesn't start to bleed into other more extreme negative emotions. So let's do that. Let's go point by point. And let's start with Josh Allen. One of the ratios that is always going to be important for me when it comes to Josh Allen is the ratio of plays an average quarterback wouldn't likely make versus plays an average quarterback wouldn't likely miss. It's always been the rub with Allen. It's been a Bruce ratio when it comes to Josh Allen for years now. And at the very beginning of his career, that ratio was out of balance. Last year, it was also out of balance, but in a much more favorable way for the Buffalo Bills. But this week, missed the bubble screen low. Deep ball misses. Great throw down the seam to Sanders that was dropped. Great touchdown throw to Davis. The ratio was a little bit close to even, which is not a good thing. You don't want it to be even. So it wasn't Josh Allen's best day. But there are other things that are intertwined with that. Allen, play calling, offensive line, they're all intertwined. And isolating them is tough, but it's never just one. So that's the Josh Allen side of it. But then there's the protection side of it. And it's not quite as simple as, hey, we should have had a team out there on Sunday who activated Zach Moss. I understand. Trust me, I have been a proponent of Zach Moss and his pass protection skills for a long time. And on Twitter, I flat out said that not deciding to activate Zach Moss against a defense like Pittsburgh struck me as a little odd. But if you look at the game plan in the first half, it was clearly five-man protections. Now you might say, Bruce, why aren't you leaving a tight end in? Because then you're inviting green dog blitzes from the Steelers. Green dog blitzes are when you're running man coverage and your assigned man stays in a block, you end up blitzing. So what you're really doing against a team that utilizes things like that is you're taking five on four and you're turning it into six on five, which increases your margin of error. Everyone seems to think that max protect is always you know, a better idea. We'll just keep more people in the block. Well, that's not always beneficial because sometimes it's I bring six in and then they bring one extra guy. Now it's six on five. I bring two extra. Now they have two extra. So now it's seven on six. So it's really not necessarily always helping you. So you're inviting green dog blitzes into your offense when you do that. It's not quite as simple as stop spreading it out because then you're confusing the looks for the quarterback. It's not as simple as run the ball 
it's never quite as simple as you think. It's not quite as simple as leave somebody in to block. It's not quite as simple as stop spreading it out. And it's not quite as simple as running the ball. The offensive line has to eventually win. They have to win. So there's an Allen component to this. There's a protection component to this. And then there's also a play calling component to this. The play calling was reminiscent to me of the Jets in week one of 2020 with the designed Allen runs being a significant part of the running game. This is clearly what Brian Dable wants to do against what he perceives to be a tough run defense. Because then, if you use a quarterback design run, you have the numbers advantage that you don't have when you hand the ball off. Where I think Brian Dable went wrong here is I think he actually gave the Steelers' run defense too much credit with Stephon Tuitt out. I think he approached them as if they were this impenetrable wall, which I don't think is true. And I think some of the runs that Devin Singletary was able to break off early in the game and then late in the game were enough to show you that this wasn't a team you needed to have that game plan against. So failing to realize that the offensive line wasn't necessarily up to the task in pass blocking one-on-one, but probably was up to the task in running the ball was, I think, one of the most significant problems for Brian Dable on Sunday. Now, as I said before, it might not work, but you would be transitioning from something that isn't working to something that might not work. That's an upgrade for me. Once you have statistically significant data to indicate that your players are struggling one-on-one, which was fairly obvious fairly early, being able to pivot from that from something that's absolutely not working to something that might not work is valuable. Now, you might be saying, why didn't he use the screen game? Important to note, screens do not slow down pass rushes. They slow down blitzes. The point of calling a screen into a down and distance that you think that they might blitz into is to get numbers advantage on the backside. So now you have a bunch of players in the backfield who were let in by the offensive line, and now the offensive line is able to get out in front of this running back or wide receiver or tight end or whoever it is, and now you have numbers advantage. You essentially flanked them. If this was the Battle of Gettysburg, you'd be the Confederate Army trying to flank and do the swinging gate up the hill, end up getting pushed back, have Colonel Chamberlain do a bayonet charge and swing gate down the... Anyway, it's a whole thing. Just It's a Gettysburg reference. I'm a nerd. I get it. But the point is that screen game wasn't necessarily the answer. Screen game might be the answer to blitzing, but they didn't blitz Josh Allen very much. Had they, I would have been more than willing to say, yes, we should have used some blitzes, but they didn't. So instead, the criticism that I'll lob for Brian Dable is that he gave too much respect to the Steelers' run defense with the game plan, and he failed to realize early enough that the offensive line was not up to the task one-on-one. So three aspects to this. Allen missed some throws he shouldn't have missed. Not a great day for Josh Allen. Protection wasn't on par. They did not win their one-on-ones. And Brian Dable didn't understand the assignment as well as we wanted him to. 
So there's criticism to go around. Everyone's got a little bit of a hand in it. And sometimes what we have a tendency to do is we want the easy answer. We want the this one guy, this one thing. So I just named three different aspects of offensive failure against the Pittsburgh Steelers, all of which had multiple sub aspects. This is a lot of stuff that goes into football. We do the plurality pie at the end of every single one of these episodes specifically to outline the fact that it's never just one thing. And it wasn't just one thing on Sunday. One side note, when it comes to the flea flicker and the fourth down play that nobody liked from Brian Dable. If they work, it's creative. If they don't, it's cute. Just the way it works. Sorry. Sorry, Brian Dable. If it works, everyone thinks you're a genius. And if it doesn't work, it's not good enough. The criticism that I will have isn't because it didn't work. I'm not going to do that. I've never done that before. I will never criticize it because it didn't work. I will criticize it for this reason. I don't think it was necessary. I think this team could have lined up in a spread formation and did a sneak and got one yard with Josh Allen. I think they could have given it to Devin Singletary and got one yard. It felt to me like there was simply an overestimation based on all the stuff I've said before, based on the Josh Allen heavy run game with almost double-digit carries from Josh Allen, based on the cute plays. It seems to me like Brian Dable overestimated how good the Steelers were in run defense. And they're very good, don't get me wrong. But I don't think they're an impenetrable wall that you absolutely have to work around. And that's what it felt like Brian Dable was calling the game like. Now, let's go to the offensive line. Because I spent a lot of time yesterday. Today's Wednesday, I'm recording the podcast. But Tape Tuesday, hashtag Tape Tuesday, for me, is the day that I go and I do the notes for the show. And I watch the game back. And I take notes and I pause and I rewind and I go through all the stuff. I think there's a very reasonable possibility that the quality of offensive linemen when it came to the five who got the most reps, I think the quality for Sunday's play went Cody Ford, Mitch Morse, Daryl Williams, Deion Dawkins, John Feliciano from best to worst. Raise your hand if you thought Cody Ford had a chance to be the best offensive lineman on the Buffalo Bills for week one of 2021. Wasn't me. Wasn't me. Now, he wasn't against Cam Hayward a lot of the time. He was against Tyson Alualu. He was against Wormley. Cam Hayward, one of the best interior defensive linemen in football, was up against John Feliciano and absolutely took him to town. But Deion Dawkins wasn't even good aside from the holding. It was not up to task. Now, I think it's easy to look on Deion Dawkins and go, okay, you know, still recovering from COVID, things like that. There's an easy built-in thing there. But for John Feliciano, came in in allegedly some of the best shape of his career, dropped a little bit of weight. John Feliciano was a player who was a hot topic this past offseason. If you remember correctly, when I talked about the Book of Bruce for some things that I believe in when it comes to team building, one of them was don't re-sign meh players. And I openly said, I would not have re-signed John Feliciano. He's a meh player. 
Now, his contract didn't end up being that bad. It was actually a little better than it was reported. It's essentially a one-year, $3.5 million contract. But that also means that there's a very reasonable chance that neither Mitch Morse nor John Feliciano are on this team next year. And when you look at the cupboard in interior offensive linemen, Ike Butker is going to be an unrestricted free agent. Ryan Bates is going to be a restricted free agent, so you have to tender him at at least 2.2 mil. This is the reason why I said when I ranked the needs, interior offensive line was need number two on this entire team. And I really wanted the Bills to address it in the draft because it was something that I was thinking might come up. It just came up a little bit earlier than I wanted it to be. There are two teams that we watched play on Sunday that are gunning for Kansas City, specifically in the AFC. The Bills and the Browns. And they approached their off-seasons very, very differently. And I want to make a note of this because I want you to watch some Browns games. And I want you to watch some Bills games because it's going to be a fascinating storyline for me personally as I watch this season. Both of them were gunning for the same team. But they approached the offseason differently. The Bills invested in the defensive line. They saw what happened in the Super Bowl and they said, we need to get that pressure on Patrick Mahomes. Let's go get Greg Rousseau. Let's go get F.A. Obata. Let's go get Boogie Basham. Let's do this thing. But they ran it back at defensive back and offensive line. The Browns invested heavily in their back seven. Greg Newsom. John Johnson, Jeremiah Wusu-Koromoa, they're back seven, defending the pass through coverage. I mentioned on Twitter that I was a big fan of what the Browns did in the offseason. And the Browns ended up losing to the Kansas City Chiefs. So it's going to be fascinating for me to see both teams had disappointing losses in week one to somewhere between solid and very good AFC teams. The Pittsburgh Steelers are a solid team. I don't think they're a Super Bowl contender, but I think they're a solid team. I think they're a completely reasonable team with a really, really good defense. Kansas City Chiefs are obviously the AFC champions for a reason. But there's two ways that both teams looked to solve a problem differently. The Bills did it one way. The Browns did it a different way. And I think that's going to be fun to watch over the course of the season. Now, there were four players who were on breakout watch this season. Dawson Knox, Ed Oliver, Tremaine Edmonds, Cody Ford. We had talked about these players this offseason and say, hey, what if they break out? What if they end up being really good? How far would that push this team in a positive direction? All four of them were pretty good on Sunday. So that's an encouraging piece for me. Ed Oliver was very good specifically against the run, but also very, very good. He was affecting the play. He was making plays in the backfield. He was affecting the running back. Even when he wasn't making a tackle, the running back had to adjust their run, specifically because Ed Oliver was up in their gravy. Cody Ford, as mentioned, probably the best offensive lineman for the Buffalo Bills. Dawson Knox, four targets, four catches, multiple conversions, and some tough catches. Tremaine Edmonds looked fast and decisive, played well. So there's the other side of this coin 
which is, hey, we've got some encouragement here. So the disappointing thing is the three things that are intertwined on the offensive side of the ball. Play calling, Allen, protection. None of them were up to snuff. Don't try to make it one thing when it's really all three. And I understand that's not fun. It's not sexy. It's not easy to digest. But the truth oftentimes is complicated. And we'd much rather settle for simple lies than complicated truth. It's just easier for us. But the truth is that it's all three things. And I hope I did a decent job of outlining my particular qualms with each one of those three things. So that's the downside. But then the upside is, if those three things, which we have seen, work together in concert for a positive and record-breaking Buffalo Bills offense, if those three things continue along the path that they were on in 2020 in a very positive way, and we also continue to get positive play from the four breakout watch players, Dawson Knox, Ed Oliver, Tremaine Evans, Cody Ford, that's a very encouraging sign for the season. So I don't really overreact to one loss. I don't freak out. I don't make crazy adjustments. But we're going to do plurality pie. Offensive line, 26%. Allen, 21%. Dable, 16%. McDermott, 12%. Let's stop. Let's talk about McDermott. Because I already mentioned my particular qualms with the offensive line, Allen and Dable. You can tell from my plurality pie percentages, I think the offensive line was more at fault than Allen, and I think Allen was more at fault than Dable. But McDermott has a part to play in this too. I think that McDermott, first off, didn't give himself the option to adjust in-game by taking away the ability of Zach Moss to be there active on the field and be able to protect. More options are better than less options. Now, again, as I mentioned, it's not as simple as, well, let's just keep one in. But it'd be nice to have the option. Now, I'm not saying you can't keep Devin Singletary in. You absolutely can. But Zach Moss is a better blocker. So being able to have the option to keep him in, if you know you have a ferocious pass rush from the Steelers, which you should know that you do, would have given them another tool. And that's Sean McDermott call. Sean McDermott not being able to decide what type of game he thinks he's in when it comes to fourth down calls. Wasn't a huge fan. The punt unit, 8%. Big play. Real big play. Block punt return for touchdown. The Buffalo Bills got the big defensive score last time the Bills played the Steelers with Taron Johnson's pick six. This time around, the Steelers got it. Levi Wallace, 4%. Yeah, pretty small. I think that the pass interference could have very easily been not called on Levi Wallace. And he got a hand on the ball that was tipped for Deontay Johnson. That's simply a matter of luck. The reason why he shows up on here at all is because it furthers the storyline that I've been trying to tell when it comes to Levi Wallace, which is completely reasonable. He's a completely reasonable corner but you just can't ask him to do a lot of things. So he's limited. He is both simultaneously reasonable and limited. My issue with Levi Wallace is every single time over the course of his career that an offense has made a distinct decision to go after him 
he has not been able to make them pay with big plays. Defensive coordinator Leslie Frazier flat out said, you have to make a play to get them to stay away from you. And Levi will. He will do it. The implication there is, of course, he didn't or he hasn't. There are two main things that I'm looking for when I look at corner play and I'm watching film. Number one, were they able to take something off the menu for the quarterback? Did the quarterback want to throw it to their person but decided not to? We call this moving along. If they look at your target and go, nah, and you move along, that's a win. If they decide not to move along, if they decide, yes, you know what? I'm going to throw at this person. Then you need to make them pay for doing that. So either take the target off the menu, right? That's a win for a cornerback. Sometimes people only focus on the point of catch when you're evaluating defensive back play. And that's not appropriate because you're missing out on all of the things that I would consider to be opportunity cost when throwing the football. It's all the throws they didn't make because the coverage was good. All the throws they didn't make because the defensive back was in good position. That's a win. If a quarterback looks elsewhere, if you are the coverage on the quarterback's primary read and they move on to number two, that's a victory. That's important against Tua Tungavaloa this week. Make him move along. Move along, Tua. Move along. If you get Tua to move along, that's a win. If he looks at the guy who's being covered by Tredavious White and then he moves along, that's a win. So that's the first thing you can do. The second thing you can do is when they decide not to move along, when they pull the trigger and say, no, I'm going there, you got to make them pay. And Levi Wallace doesn't do either one of those things at a high enough level. Now he does not give up a big play and tackle, and that's reasonable. But that is a distant third. That is a distant third in the priority list. You have two things that are tied for first, and then you have a distant third. The two things tied for first are make him not throw it or throw it and make a play on the ball. Those are tied for first. A distant third is have him throw it, have the guy make the catch, make the tackle to avoid big yak. And the thing that Levi Wallace is good at is the thing that is distant third on the list. So this is not a pile on Levi Wallace discussion because like I said, reasonable but limited. But I wanted to take the opportunity to outline why I had been pounding the table so hard for CB2 this offseason and the season before that. Reasonable, but limited. He's 4%. Cole Beasley, 4%. Two balls off his hands that he absolutely could have gotten that really hurt the offense. When you have offense who's struggling, you need every single play you can get. And Cole Beasley, uncharacteristically, had some passes that he would like to have an opportunity to catch again. Other 23%. So, offensive line 26, Allen 21, Dable 16, McDermott 12, Punt Unit 8, Levi Wallace 4, Cole Beasley 4, Other 23, 100% plurality pie. We are going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We got some emails to go through. Stick with me. We'll be right back. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. 
Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. We did plurality pie. We tackled some narratives. Not one, all three. We went through how those things are intertwined. And now we've got some emails. Julian emails me and says, what's going on, Bruce? I have a what if question. I think you're going to have a good time dissecting it. What if the Bills actually picked up J.J. Watt? How different would the Bills be right now? And would we be better or worse? Okay, this is a fun thought exercise. So I think if the Bills had gotten J.J. Watt, I think there's a reasonable chance they still would have gone Greg Rousseau in the first, but I don't think they would have double-dipped on Boogie Basham. Which means you could have seen a trade-up in the second for Asante Samuel Jr. You could have seen an interior offensive lineman there. Could have seen a running back, maybe, because they openly said, hey, we would have done it, but there wasn't anybody we really liked right there. Now, I have a hard time imagining the Bills would be markedly better than they are right now, because I think the Bills' defensive line actually played pretty well on Sunday. And also, it's only one game. So I'm going to consider this a push, but also... You have to do the cap space thing. The Bills signed J.J. Watt. How much cap space do they have? What other moves do they have to make? What veterans did they not bring back? Did they not bring back Mario Addison in that case? Because that takes a little bit off of it. So for me, I'm calling it a push due to lack of statistically significant sample size. Patrick says, hey, Bruce, thanks for the outstanding content. I've been listening, enjoying your work for some time, but I don't believe I've heard you discuss why you choose to provide content under a pseudonym. Total respect for the decision. Just curious as to the reasoning to the extent you're willing to share. So you may be shocked to know that Bruce Nolan is a pseudonym. It is not my real name. Or is it? Or is it partially my real name? <laughs> anyway, the point is that it is absolutely a, you know, a fabrication based on a character who was a news reporter in Buffalo, New York, in the movie Bruce Almighty. And it was my screen name on the Buffalo Bills message boards way back in the day. And it became my Twitter handle when I came over to Twitter many years ago, but it essentially sat dormant. I didn't really use my Twitter for about the first eight or nine years of even having it. So that's where Bruce Nolan, the name comes from. The reason why I do the podcast under a pseudonym is I'm just a really private person. It's really that simple. It's a very, very simple explanation. I keep my personal life separate from my podcast. Um, I think that in my head, I know that I won't be doing this forever. And when the time comes for me to leave, I want to be able to pull the ripcord and get out and it be gone. 
and for it not to bleed into any other aspects of my life. I'm a very compartmentalized person. Uh, I do have some obsessive compulsive tendencies, and I think that this helps me. So for me, I'm a very private person, and I don't want to. And it's created some challenges along the way, but I'm really cool with that. Like I'm completely fine with just saying no to things because I don't need to have my real name or my real face be part of anything. It doesn't, doesn't matter to me. So I hope that answers your question as fast as I possibly can. Peter sent me an almighty take right before the season started. He said on the cusp of the season, Bill's mafia is feeling many things, excitement, hope, Feelings not common amongst us in a long time. Feelings a great many fans, myself included, have never experienced this team is good. Darn good. And yet, with the regular season staring back at us, I can't shake another feeling. 2020 AFC runner-up. Second place in the MVP voting. Second team All-Pro. They're good, but can they beat Kansas City? Deep down in the fiber of what makes them human, does the congregation of people in the Buffalo Bills locker room regard silver medals in much esteem? I think not. What we are perceiving as success and respect, this team, in no uncertain terms, sees as the penultimate peak on the climb to the top of the mountain. The peak that makes you hungry. The peak that fills your belly with hope. My almighty take for the 2021 Buffalo Bills season is that they show no mercy on their climb from second place to the top. Enjoy the game on Sunday, Bruce. Thanks as always for your time and contributions to the Bills content that I happily consume 52 weeks a year. Best, Pete. I think it's important that I have that email in my inbox and read it to you now, Bills Mafia. Because I think that the deflation, that difference between expectations and reality, that disappointment that you're feeling, has a tendency to kind of Put a cloud over the team. But all the same things we felt at 12.57 on Sunday, all of those same things are true. If you look back to week one of 2020 and some of the storylines and narratives around teams that year, Tampa Bay lost by 11. The Jaguars came out and whooped on the Colts. Jaguars ended up with the number one pick in the draft and the Colts were a playoff team. A lot of things can lie to you in week one. So I think it's important that I read that now. Evan sent me two. And Evan said, first off, I think this might be a little out of left field and myself not a parent, but I can't relate. But I just found out on NFL game day that Pat Mahomes is a new parent. I've heard from many athletes that lack of sleep when raising an infant affects your productivity and competition. So I can see a potential drop-off for Kansas City this season. Also, this might be proven silly after the KC Cleveland game. Who knows? I'm average at predicting insane Bills results, amazing at picking exactly one draft, and awful at predicting the rest of the league. I should really stick to fistfights in a steel cage. Shouldn't we all really stick to fistfights in a steel cage? Control the controllables. Evan. In regards to Patrick Mahomes, I know that his wife, Brittany, has been taking a lot of the overnight duty so that Patrick can make sure that he maintains normal sleep schedules. So I don't know if he'll necessarily affect him the way that physiologically you would think it might if he was up multiple times every evening 
and as such lacking in sleep. The second Evan take said, you're going to get a lot of sky is falling takes this week. I'm not there yet. How long should we wait to panic? This bad of play calling until week four. Also, I've realized I got used to better play calling in the last four seasons. So as a general rule, I consider three games a trend. That's my general personal opinion. You can consider whatever you like to be a trend. I will tell you that it seems unreasonable to me to consider one game statistically significant data. For me, a trend is three games. Jesse says, greetings on this Bills Steelers post-mortem Monday. Although yesterday's game was not as dire as my salutation might suggest, it does raise a concern. As you tweeted, it's a data point, just like Aaron Rodgers' inauspicious opener against the Saints. It lies outside a trend of progress over the past three years, so we shouldn't assign too much significance to it yet. However, we should be on low alert for a troubling variable that may have influenced Allen's performance. We need to consider how crowds may affect Allen. Despite his near MVP season last year, he still hasn't established consistency in a normal pre-COVID setting. He has performed excellently in many pressure situations, but I can only think of one that took place in a typical NFL environment, the Thursday night game against the Dallas Cowboys in 2019. Yesterday, his play fell within his normal range of performance outside COVID conditions. He made a few splash plays, but computed, completed fewer than 60% of his passes for fewer than six yards per attempt and struggled with ball security. His throwing motion on deep passage was the tight and twitchy scatter shot of seasons past rather than the looping relaxed release that placed pigskin projectiles in the hands of his receivers with pinpoint accuracy a year ago. I'm not yet willing to project regression, but as I watch Allen over the next few weeks, I will be crossing my fingers in hopes that a renewed game day environment doesn't return him to the anxious Allen of 2019. Jesse, I'm not willing to go there on Josh Allen. And here's the reason why. I know that the Allen and crowds narrative, I know that's a thing. The reason that I'm not willing to go there is because as much as you might think that the Allen that we saw Buffalo versus Steelers on Sunday is closer to 2019, Allen. I would tell you it's actually closer to Bill's Steelers, Allen. Josh Allen's game against the Steelers wasn't markedly different than his previous games against the Steelers. So knowing that I have those two data points, I can either assign it to Allen and crowds or I can assign it to Allen and Steelers. One of those things seems like a lot stronger of a variable to me. So for me, Allen Steelers. I'm not willing to go there yet on Allen. It's the reason why I haven't addressed it very much. I'm not willing to go there. I understand that the psychology of football is a thing. I get it. I believe it. I understand it. But there's going to have to be a pretty significant amount of data before I'm willing to say it's that and not something else. Not something that seems more obvious. When it comes to Occam's razor, I usually stick to it. Occam's razor, the simplest solution has the greatest, highest probability of being accurate. When it comes to me, that's what I'm thinking. Much like Potter, Hyde, Josh, Beasley, and McDermott, all taking responsibility for the loss of Pittsburgh. This is another email from Evan. I've grinded the tape and did some hard evaluation and realized I let the team down. I thought to myself before the Steelers game, you're fine with the ludicrous speed almighty take season that you sent in before. Week one will be a dominant win. No need for an outrageous single game almighty take. And I was wrong. So to you, 
Brother Bill, Greg Tomset, Del Reed, and the rest of Bill's Mafia, I'm sorry. So here we go as my mea culpa. The Buffalo Bills hand the Miami Dolphins their worst home loss of Brian Flores' career. With the defense mauling Tua so bad, their scouting team immediately must change plans to start familiarizing themselves with Spencer Rattler, Desmond Ritter, and Carson Strong. Devin Singletary has the best game by a Bills running back since the snow game, and Josh Allen once again proves to be Miami's reckoning, torching them but only having 290 yards and three passing touchdowns. Buffalo will still have 600 yards of total offense, and the defense has four turnovers, including a fumble return and a pick six, thus announcing that the Buffalo Bills 2020 revenge tour has commenced following a 56-3 shellacking of the fish in South Beast. I can always count on Evan for some sort of absolutely ludicrous, ridiculous take. I appreciate it, Evan. Ladies and gentlemen, we did it. We did the narratives. We did the plurality pie. We took a commercial break. We did a mailbag. Come back. See me next week. We'll do it again. We'll have some discussion. We'll have some reasonable, calm, level-headed discussions. We won't fire anyone on the podcast unless they really need it. And make sure you're catching me. With Nate Geary on Friday evenings. Pod drops on Saturday mornings. But show up alive. Friday nights. 9 p.m. Eastern. Food for Thought. Buffalo Rumblings YouTube. Let's do it. And if you miss out, I guess all I got to say is that's the way the cookie crumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan. Buffalo Rumblings.